A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. It's me. Hi, I'm the Flop. It's me. This is Flop Culture. Hello there, you are listening to Flop Culture, a podcast where we mainly talk about flops, but we also talk about bops, hot goss, celebs, everything in between. I'm your host, Fanula Jay. I really hope you enjoyed last week's episode on Lover with Jay's Takes. We're moving away from music and back to movies for this week's flop, but not before we chat about some other new releases and celebrity news. So without further ado, let's get into it. That was actually a lie. I'm not really going to talk about celebs this week because there's been a lot of things that I've watched and a lot of things that I have listened to that I think are kind of inherently more interesting, to be honest. Starting with season three of Love is Blind. If you're unfamiliar with the concept of Love is Blind, this is Netflix's dating show in which Nick Lachey and Vanessa Lachey are there and they ask, can people fall in love sight unseen, which is potentially the most irritating reality TV show catchphrase I've ever heard, along with those stupid cups that you can't see what they're drinking in and they pretend like they invented it as if Love Island or to be honest any other TV or movie that you know understands the continuity is a thing like they just don't acknowledge it and it wrecks it wrecks my head um as you listen to this episode I will not have watched the next three slash four episodes depending on how they drop but I will be all caught up by next week so we can chat properly then but uh I just wanted to give my first impressions because I'm obsessed with this show. I think last season was less enjoyable because I think people, certain people were on it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> Shake. And I don't think the matching went as well. I don't think that's necessarily the show's fault, but I just don't think the casting, I don't think the casting was as good. You know what I mean? And it ended up being like quite a dark season as opposed to entertaining. My first impression of Love, Love is Blind season three is that the casting is very strong because I think you do have Americans, crazy people who are doing it for the right reasons. You cannot see me unless you're watching on YouTube. I'm doing bunny ears. Also for the YouTube girlies, the lighting is haunted because we have the ugliest lampshade in our sitting room that we just haven't gotten around to uh, 
changing it. And we also haven't bought any lamps because we have no money because we bought this house. Back to love is blind. I think you have people who are doing it for the inverse commas, right reasons. You have people who are very into the concept of marriage, want to be married, really seem to be giving their all to this. And then I think you have, which I think this is where it differs from last season. I think you have people like Shake and maybe like Kyle and Shane to a lesser degree who knew they were doing it for promo, kind of knew they were doing it to be famous, but like knew, were, knew that, acknowledged that and kind of didn't really care how they came across. There's a few characters on this season that I'm like, oh, they just have no self-awareness at all. Like they're using this as a vehicle for self-promotion, but they actually don't realize that they are, do, in doing so, they're relinquishing control of their own narrative. I think the best example of that is probably Raven. I think she is on to promote Pilates. She invented Pilates. Don't forget it, girlies. She's on to promote Pilates and her business and being a Pilates instructor. And nothing is going to get in the way of that. She's getting every person down on that mat. But in doing so, she's given the editor's fodder. That's the other thing I will say, just based on the, the three or four episodes that I have watched, the editing is vicious. It is so, it's, it's so, so vicious. Do you know what my favorite thing is about the word vicious? And this isn't a read of people who have dyslexia or like literacy issues, anything like that. But like my favorite misspelling ever, especially when it comes to online and stuff and talking about things online is when people misspell vicious as viscous. And they're like, oh, oh, vi vicious girl. But they're actually saying, oh, viscous girl. <laughs> It kills me. Anyway, that that has absolutely nothing to do with what I was blind through. I'm so sorry. Um, viscous. Viscous. Anyway, the editing is viscous this year and I'm living for it. A quick run through of the couple so far. Also, fun fact uh, that I learned in researching this. You know, the last two years they've had people, they've had couples who got engaged but didn't like make it through to the rest of the show, like they weren't filmed. There weren't all the couples that got engaged, we see on the TV, like nobody else got engaged, right? So we have Alexa, um, like Grant, don't really have any strong feelings towards her. Andrew is the scariest individual I've ever had the misfortune of encountering and I haven't even encountered him. I've encountered him through a screen. That man is AI. Did he give us one of the most iconic reality TV show moments of the year? Yes. When he put in those... And like, there's a part of me that's like, ha raises an eyebrow as to whether it was real or whether they just, they knew what he was doing and they were like, we're just going to keep rolling. But for anyone who's not familiar, so he... He has proposed to, I think it's Nancy in the pods. I didn't even explain the pods. If you don't know what love is blind, and you're blind is, you're already so confused. But basically you're in these pods and you date people in the pods, but you don't see who the other person is. Like it's sight unseen. Don't forget, Nick Lachey said that. Listen to Nick Lachey, sight unseen. You can't see, right? So they're after getting to know each other himself and Nancy. He's talking about how he doesn't call many orgasms, which call a doctor, please. Any medical cards on tick. He's talking about that. He's talking about the fact that he invented wildlife photography. Um, but anyway, they're at the point now where he's like, I want to propose to this doll. We've had a great 24 hours chatting. Like I've literally had longer rollovers, but whatever. Um, and he proposed to her and she says no. And then in the confessional afterwards, the, the producer, I'm, par I'm slightly paraphrasing here, but the producer is like, how are you feeling? 
And Andrew goes, are we rolling? And they say, I'm pretty sure they say that they are or they don't answer. And he go, he's like, okay, one sec. And he goes and puts eye drops in as if he's been crying, which he hasn't been, right? And then just it gives some spiel about how he never thought he'd be this emotional over something, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you're not emotional. It's fucking Optrex. Sponsored by Optrex. Optrectrine. Whatever the fucking eye drop brand is called. This also isn't sponsored by liquid that makes your eyes not dry. But anyway, in incredible hearing him talk about transcendental sex what even is that good god almighty it's giving english paper two. Oh no english paper one is the one you write loads of shit about isn't it very strange anyway that was him he doesn't end up getting engaged to anyone then we have bartice who i do fancy i'm gonna be honest but he is also uh, a child bride a child groom i suppose uh, he's like 25 and he's saying he's ready for marriage, kids, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, well up for it. So doesn't want gals to be put off because he's a younger man, whatever. Brennan gives me a huge Kevin Federline energy. It talks about like in Shakshuka, cowboy, blah, blah, blah. Seems quite normal. Seems quite normal, but I cannot, he looks like Kevin Federline and it's it freaks my nut to look at him, to be honest. Cole is 26 and seems like he seems like he's maybe 75% caffeine at any point. Basically shares that he's been married before to a person he dated for only two months. Uh, so I mean, great track record going into this show, which is predominantly about marriage. Good for Cole. Uh, he's a real estate agent. And I said this on my stories. He's a real estate agent. And quite irritating. So I feel like they're priming him for one of the sellings on Netflix. They're, they're just going to move him, bounce him around from show to show. Colleen, who is a ballet dancer, don't forget. Ballerina, excuse me, 25. Oh my God, they're all children. Um, ballerina is annoyed that guys are only attracted to her because she's a ballerina. Um, but again, the editors feed off this and they're like, okay, here's umpteen clips of you saying that you're a ballerina and all the lads going hubba hubba and like the cartoon at the the tongue's like hanging out of their mouth and the hard eyes are going that's all the lads are doing she's like I'm a ballerina anyway Matt couldn't tell you a single thing about him could not tell you a singular thing about him and I have stuff written down here that I took from other articles and I still couldn't tell you anything one thing that I did forget though and only remembered in researching this he is, there's a lot of people who are married before and have divorced since that are on the show. And he's another one. He married his high school sweetheart. They got a divorce after she cheated on him and then got pregnant by the other man. It's all the drama, Mick. I just love it. Um, Nancy, I'm really into. A little bit kooky. 31 years old. Wants to be the Brady Bunch. Wants 800 kids. Loves a cry. This gal has dedicated this first episode. It's just having a good... Just getting, just having that healthy, healthy release of emotions. You know what I mean? I do still like her though. Raven, who I mentioned earlier, obsessed with fitness. Uh, at one point, she's in the pod on a date with Bartice. And he's, I, to be honest, I, not to be bad, even I stopped listening. He was talking about some kind of childhood trauma around his parents divorcing. And at some point, she's like, boring, and starts doing jumping jacks. Now, she doesn't say the boring out loud, but definitely in her inner monologue. She's like, boring, I have to do jumping jacks now. I have to do jumping jacks. And it just made me think, like, imagine 
your funeral or something and someone is about to go up and give, I was about to say the soliloquy. What is that called? A few moments later. Not the homily, that's the mass. What is the thing at the end where they're talking about the dead person? Oh my God. Many hours later. You, not the Eucharist. Oh, you're all shouting at me now. I'm going to have to Google this. Adam, sorry. Four to six days later. Eulogy. 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 I've killed the joke anyway now. It's as dead as whoever was dead at this fucking hypothetical funeral. You're at a funeral, like, you're at a funeral. Someone you, maybe not first person family, but like you knew them, whatever. It's a sad occasion. And someone goes up to give the eulogy and you're like, actually, do you know what? I can't even bear this. I just, the Fitbit's pinging off me. I have to go get a few steps in. I have to go do a few burpees. Sorry. I know, I know you're in the middle of something, but I just, I just feel like I haven't engaged my core today. That's Raven. That's all you need to know about her. She, I think, thought she wanted to do this and now is in it and has just, is allergic to everything and everyone. Uh, SK, He's a data engineer from Nigeria, originally going to UC Berkeley uh, for grad school. Uh, 34, wants his wife to be similarly educated, everything like that. At one point, uh, him and Raven are trying to do Pilates and he's like, this is literally, why does God give his weakest soldiers his hardest battles? And it's just using that plastic Pilates ring. Just putting the plastic Pilates ring between your thighs, squeezing it a bit. You know what I mean? And then also we have Zenab, 31-year-old flight attendant, lost both her parents young. Um, again, also kind of... Well, sorry, I don't want to say that she thought she wanted this. I still think she does, but I just think she's been paired up with the wrong person, which is Cole. They are doomed. Uh, Alex and Brennan, I feel like they're teeing up that they're going to survive. And I think they will maybe towards... I think we'll see them get married, but I think there's a breakup in their future. Colin and Zenab are dushed. Raven and SK are dushed. Bertice and Nancy, I would like to see them work out, but that man is so horny for a body dress and literally anyone bar Nancy. Like, that man is physically attracted to the mannequins in the eyelac, you know what I mean? For my cork girlies, like, just any dress you'd see in Love Lisa's. If you're from anywhere else in the world, I have no other reference to give you, but he... Raven came down in this bog-standard white dress and he was like, again, hubba hubba, Give it to me, baby. So I don't know. I'm 50-50 on them. And then in terms of the others, Colleen and Matt, I could see Colleen settling, but I kind of hope she doesn't. I think they will have... Oh, I don't know, I'm 50-50 on them as well. In terms of people who I actually think are going to do it, God, I don't know. Now that I'm looking at it, I feel like none of them. And I just hope Andrew doesn't swoop back in and take any of them, but we'll see. Do you have any thoughts? Are you watching? Please let me know. I cannot wait to catch up on the next few episodes and see how they fare outside of the pods. House of the Dragon also finished this week. Do we think they dropped the ball or no? I don't think that, but I know there was some discussion online about it and in my own group chat. I think it's been really tricky balancing the pacing when we've had two very significant time jumps in the series. So making sure you have enough of that exposition and again, for people who didn't read the books, you know, that they're covering, that they're covering enough that it satisfies them and also so that the plot isn't like threadbare, but also that the show doesn't get weighted down and all those nitty de- details. And also, I suppose, not dragging the absolute shite out of it. It's renewed for season two. There's rumours that it's only going to go for three. 
George R. R. Martin, the author of the books, wanted to go for five, apparently. I haven't read the books, so this could be horseshit, right? But as far as I'm aware, it's definitely not as long of a story as we'll say the story that was covered in Game of Thrones. So, like, I'm not... I think the criticism is that the last two episodes weren't, like, very, very action-packed. I There was enough there for me and there was enough in the performances that that wasn't... I don't know, not everything needs to be bashing and crashing and smashing. That's that's all I say on that. The finale itself, love Rhaenys, can't believe I ever doubted her. Damon, look, we all love an anti-hero. That man is bad and he showed his ass. He showed his ass this episode. That, that's a red flag. That's a red flag, my dears. He wants to be in power. He doesn't care about Rhaenyra. Not in the way that she cares about him in their weird old family pervert way. I, she genuinely loves him. Morals, I whatever. But I do think there's a small part of him that does care for her. But his love of power and the idea of power is always going to be great in that. And then the end of the episode. Oh my god! Try watching that in a room full of people because that was stressful. Like. Emmons going over he's trying to start everything out he's like I'll marry her one it's grand don't worry about it and then he just loses the plot over this eye and getting all worked up and it, revenge everything like that and then oh, poor old what's the fella that got eaten Luceris Monch 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 that dragon Emmons dragon like neutral bulleted Luceris poor Luke poor poor Luke Emma Darcy as Rhaenyra, just so good. So good though. And Olivia Cook. I hope they both get nominated for everything. Everything. I really enjoyed it. Not without its issues that other people that are smarter than me have talked about in terms of how they've handled, you know, uh, LGBTQ plus relationships, representation, that kind of jazz. The birth scenes were absolutely vicious. Viscous. We're back to it again. Um but in a way that I think was important um, and didn't, I suppose, again, wouldn't have affected me in the way that it would have affected others. But I just, I think it it holds on its own. I just hope they don't, I hope they don't drag the shit out of it. I hope they just don't do a Game of Thrones on it. But look, we'll see. As I'm recording this, I'm just out of Banshees of Inna Sharon the new movie with uh, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell that is getting huge awards, Oscar buzz, Martin McDonough is directing like an In Bruges reunion, but this is very much not In Bruges. This is like a black comedy through and through. Very haunting, very beautiful. Not something I would generally, generally watch. Very, very good. Very funny. Colin Farrell should be nominated for everything. I don't know if he'll win because I don't know what what Banshees is up against in terms of other movies. Like, is Elvis genuinely in with a shout for stuff? Like, I, in terms of those acting categories, someone tell me it's at flat culture underscore pod. Please DM me because I'm, I'm I don't mean to be ignorant there. I'm just not sure. And it, with regards to Elvis, with regards to other nominations, I'm just not sure. Um, Barry Keoghan should definitely be up for best supporting. He is so good and it's such a little freaky weirdo. Uh, Kerry Condon, who plays Siobhan, she's Porrick's sister in it, is also great and I feel like nobody's talking about her and that's really annoying. Um, I I really enjoyed it. I did really enjoy it. The 
everything looks beautiful. I think it's a really just great tale of everything from mortality, mental health, love, community, isolation, loneliness, friendship. It's a very to the bone for anyone who's ever experienced like a friendship breakup like that. But it's just, it has this kind of unique Irish madness that only we could have. It's very good. It is very, very good. Go watch it. It also gives me an opportunity to share uh, my only Colin Farrell anecdote. I need to text my sister to make sure I get the details of this right because I'll be killed otherwise. Okay, my sister didn't text me back so I'm going to have to take a punt. I just don't want to get the family members wrong, but I'm 90% sure it was my cousin Sinead's 21st. Sinead and Colin were in drama college together he was not 21 he was a little bit older and was just I think at that point I think it was like next week Mam only said this to me recently that he was like he'd said to someone or someone had said it in passing that he was due to fly out to Los Angeles or wherever he was going in America next week I am three or four and I am obsessed with Lion King I have a reversible Lion King t-shirt there's like Baby Simba on the front and then on the back, like adult Simba with Timon and Pumba, whatever. I remember the t-shirt, but I can't remember anything else, right? Which is great. Thanks. Thanks to the worms in my brains. And all night, me and Colin Farrell played Lion King. What does that entail? I'm not exactly sure. Recreating scenes from the movie, singing the songs, apparently. But we we did that and he was very obliging given that I was extremely annoying. This was the subtext of what my mom says to me every time she regales the story. Like I wouldn't leave him alone. I was being an absolute pest. And he was just like incredibly just, just absolutely up for just be, like giving me all the attention and just being sound and being a great guy. I highly doubt he remembers this, but if you do, Colin... Thanks. You probably created a monster by giving me any amount of attention that you did, but loved it. Loved it. I really wish I could remember it better, but anyway, yeah, there you go. Missed my chance. We all missed our chance to marry in with Colin Farrell there, but sure, look, there you go. Go, she banned cheese of Inishern. That's my very long-winded way of saying that. And obviously, since last week's episode, we have a new Taylor Swift album, her 10th, Midnight's. Very exciting time for all the Swifties. We also had The Loneliest Time from Carly Rae Jepsen and whatever Megan Trainer's album was called. Sorry, Megan. Poor Megan Trainer. How no one in her camp was like, maybe we'll pull it out a week. Maybe we'll just pull it out one week. There's a lot of women here to compete with. We're going to split the gay vote, you know. It's too much. Where do I stand on midnights? I was talking about it a bit on the Instagram stories at flopculture underscore pod. And I was asking people and, you know, people were giving their fave songs. Most people, most people seemed to like it. Most people were giving their favourite tracks, whatever. Very few gave kind of least favourite tracks. There was a handful of people who kind of said it was boring. Nothing was really capturing them or maybe one or two songs. And I think my, my initial reaction was it didn't, it wasn't what I was expecting it was much poppier. I suppose she was putting forward this very 70s aesthetic. So I thought it was going to be more in line with that and more embodying kind of musically and the style of folklore evermore in a way that it was going to build on that. But it was it's way poppier. But again, I suppose not in the way that I would have expected it to be. It's very, 
it's very reputation meets 1989 with other kind of layers that I can't really identify that are new to her, I think, as well. Um, I think the lyricism is excellent. It's probably lyrically her best album. I don't really agree with the people who've I've been listening to a couple of podcasts that say it's kind of like full of cliches, whatever. I I didn't really think so. I do think this is probably some of her strongest work that way. I suppose where it's left me cold is that because it is such an amalgamation of uh, Reputation and 1989 and those kind of instrumental beats, there's just songs on both of those albums that I think she's done better than some of the stuff on this. Um, now, I will say this is after a week of listening to it. And it has grown on me more since that initial listen. I think I'll think about it probably completely differently in four weeks' time. Um, But, and the whole thing with the 3am tracks as well. Like, look, this is me being cynical again, but I think I'm right. Again, that's just to close the streaming gap. You know what I mean? That's just so there's, and I think it's, it's more opportunities for her to make money. You know, I don't doubt that like she had the songs, whatever, but it's just, they don't really fit into, and I know she acknowledges this, but they don't really fit into the concept of this Midnight concept album. It's very, they're very strange tacked on in a way. In terms of what I like, Antihero is very good, obviously, lead single. Snow on the Beach, I really like. And also people giving out the you can't hear Lana on it. You can in the chorus. Like, you can. And I, I'm i not, and I said this on Instagram, I'm not that bothered that we didn't get a solo Lana verse because I'm not really, I'm not a massive Lana stan. I really like her on Your Own Kid. I like Midnight Rain. Then after this, I'm kind of lost for a little bit. Initially, I really liked Question. And I like the concept of it. I don't think the production is that strong. I don't like Vigilante shit because I just think every, all those songs about revenge, she's done better songs about revenge before, to be honest. I love Bejeweled, big fan of Bejeweled. Labyrinth, not that memorable, to be honest. I'm struggling to even remember it now. Karma, I really like. Sweet Nothing is nice. Mastermind is nice. We get into 3M tracks. The Great War is fine. Bigger than the whole sky, I can't really remember. Fine. Paris is nice, but is a vault track to me. Like it's not, like there's a reason it's a bonus track. High Infidelity is very good, even just for the gossip, like, who's she on about? She's definitely on about Calvin Harris. She's full of, people have, like, lined up the dates there. It was supposed to be, there's a date mentioned, um, and it's around the time that he was releasing, this is what she came for, and it's, basically people have joined the dots that it was when she was with Tom Hiddleston, we think. Allegedly, don't, oh, my voice gave out, that was Taylor Swift's ghost coming to get me. High Infidelity, Glitch, could take her leave. What if Cutter Should Have is very good, is very, very good. And John Mayer should be extremely afraid, especially if the the theories from the Bejeweled video or anything to believe that her next re-record is going to be her third album, Speak Now, which obviously features the song Dear John, which is basically like, why were you such a pervert, you big pervert? My days of being a John Mayer apologist, I think, are going to have to be over. And Dear Reader, the final 3am track, I really, really liked um, there's a guy on TikTok he's a big music guy I'm going to bring it up and I'm going to make sure the music doesn't play um, because obviously we so Antihero was released as a lead single great lead single that was one of the issues with Lover was that she seemed to be really bad at picking singles that seems to be over now good for her I think Bejeweled is the right second single I kind of believe she has videos for all the tracks I'm not sure if they all weren't tracks did I even talk about the start of the album? I don't think I did oh my god 
lavender haze uh, I didn't like initially and I like more now maroon I am also liking more now they're both growing on me um, yeah I think she needs to just fuck off away from Jack Antonoff for a while and work with other people because I think when she works with Aaron Dessner I think it's or it's the three of them together I think it works better but this album she said came off the back of because then there were all the theories of you know she said all the tracks were like from sleepless nights she's had across her career so then people were thinking are, were these discarded songs from past eras whatever blah 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 and then she came out it was like me and Jack worked on this album together while our other halves were away working on this movie uh, Jack Antonoff's other half is Margaret Qualley and Taylor Swift is obviously going out with Joe Alwyn I cannot think of the name of the movie that they're working on together with. it's supposed to be shite so who cares um, but it was they was like the first time they were alone in a while and were able to work on this together so yeah, then it was kind of, if you were to believe that, it's like, oh no, these are all, this is all new material that she's written l- reflecting back on those periods, right? Which is why you have like the the would have, should have, could have kind of being a sequel to Dear John. She's looking back on that time in her life and being like, and another thing, another thing, Mr. Mayor. Uh, there is a TikTok guy I follow. He comes up often on my For You page and I don't, I don't know if I find him annoying or not, but anyway, I thought this was interesting. His name's Sam Murphy, and he's talking about the fact that Bejeweled was released as the second single, and here was the first single. Absolutely made sense. The strongest song. And then you have Bejeweled, which in my opinion, I really like. Uh, I know when I was talking about it on Instagram, some people don't. Um, We had the video. That's what we were talking about. And the fact that she has lots of, she has all these videos, I think, ready to go. Um, but he basically has a theory that, you know, this is Taylor Swift being in full savage like marketing mode. This is why she's released Bejeweled as the second single and the video. Um, it's because, so right now in the States, this is obviously just a theory, obviously alleged. In the States at the minute, she occupies nine places in the top 10. Unholy takes the number 10 spot and then Bad Habit Steve Lacey is 11. And then on the outside, you have Bejeweled, Labyrinth, Mastermind, Sweet Nothing. So, and now she's just released Bejeweled as a digital single and Question as a digital single, two digital singles uh, for $1.29, that's in dollars. And Sam's basically reckoning that she's done this so she can close that gap um, because one digital copy equals 150 streams. Uh, And yeah, it's just her being, it's just Blondie being little miscapitalism and potentially closing the gap. Now, other Swifties are debating this and just being like, it was always going to be a second single. Uh, was always gonna, She had the videos recorded, yada, 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 whatever. And don't get me started on the, even the, there are so many theories around this, like the the Lavender Haze theory about lavender weddings. Go Google that yourself. I'm not getting into it. Um, but yeah, a lot to unpack. Kind of disappointed if the next re-record isn't going to be 19, 1989. I already said 1979. 1989, but Speak Now has some good songs on it as well, obviously. Dear John, Banger, uh, Sparks Fly, classic, classic, The Gal Never Sleeps, The Loneliest Time, The Loneliest Time, Carly Rae Jepsen. I'm going to take that again because that was an awkward transition. From Midnight Alone to The Loneliest Time from our gal, Carly Rae Jepsen, uh, big competition coming up against Miss T-Swizzle, our Canadian queen, not really sure how I feel about this album either. I feel like it's two separate albums kind of joined together. It's her cosplaying as Kylie in her disco era. 
and some of the songs work and some of the songs really don't. And then you have these other songs that are very like Joshua Tree, all American guitars. It's not country music, but it's like that kind of wistful looking off in the distance. What's next for me kind of vibe. Um, I got 6.5 in Pitchfork and I think that's a fair review. Not that Pitchfork, Pitchfork isn't like the be all end all when it comes to music or criticism, but I thought that was fair. They gave Taylor a seven, which I also think was fair. I wouldn't have given it anymore. Uh, Surrender My Heart, great tune. Joshua Tree, forgettable. I liked Far Away. I liked Talking to Herself as the single. Liked Sideways. I liked Beach House as a, Beach House as a single grew on me in the context of this album. It makes no sense. It makes, and it kind of irritates me to be honest. Ben's I could take or leave. Western Wind grows on me more in the context of this album. Didn't love it as a single. So Nice and Bad Thing Twice are great. I love them as a couplet. Really good. I liked the snippet I heard of Shooting Star, but on the album it sounds unfinished. Production-wise, everything-wise. I love a vocal effect. I love when my pop girlies sound like they're singing into a fan. But this is a bit too much of that for me. Go find yourself or whatever. Very beautiful. And I love The Loneliest Time at Rufus Minor. I think that is really underrated. And But again, she does that thing of like, let's make the bonus tracks way better than anything that's on the actual album. So that's Anxious. Anxious is a bonus track and is excellent. Um, but actually, the same can be said for the last two. No thinking of the weekend and keep away. Didn't love them. Did not love them. I am really excited to see her in Dublin. Uh, and I'm excited to see where my thoughts go with those two albums in general. But I think that's quite enough from me. And I think it's time instead, let's stop talking about bops and let's start talking about flops. On Flop Culture this week, my guest's pick is probably the strangest thing I've ever watched in my life. I'd never encountered it before this podcast, but I was subsequently thrilled by the rich history behind it. And I know you will too, even if you've never heard of it. Trust me. There was no better person to dig into it with me than music journalist Zara Hederman. We are talking about the monkey's much maligned movie, Head. Enjoy. Zara Hederman, an absolute pleasure. Don't start laughing now. Don't hijack your intro. It's a pleasure to have you on Flap Culture. Thank you, Fanola. Um, it's just very good because we just went from naught to six today. It's very good. <laughs> You went very we were having an absolute massive bitch before we started recording, so which Adam I hope doesn't have on file and can't uh, use against us at any point. He's going to ruin he's, us. He's tapping his nose. He could. He could do that at some point. Um, let's talk about your pick. So you chose Head, yeah. which is the monkeys movie, and I kind of immediately replied and was like, "Great," because I have I've never seen it. I know very little about the monkeys. My knowledge of them extends to. Baby Marge really liked them in The Simpsons oh, and she had the lunchbox yeah. and her hair was really small. I forgot about oh, that actually, yeah. Best ever. That was my cover on Facebook for many, many years. Just oh, that should... that image of her holding the lunchbox. Anyway, that was all I knew about it. Why did you pick Head? So I picked Head because... So when I was a teenager, I can't remember if it was like Comedy Central or MTV or something like that, but they used to rerun the Monkeys TV series. And I watched it, like maybe even younger, maybe it was like 10, 11, and just really liked the vibe of it. Um, thought all the guys were really gas and obviously the whole 60s imagery was really cool and I really liked that. And I never knew about the movie until maybe three years ago. Um, 
and was really fascinated by like just the description of it being this like mess of a film um, kind of ended the monkeys spoiler and just how everyone was just like this is the most bamboozling film of all time and I was like fabulous like I, I have to see this like, sign me up yeah exactly where can I watch this so I actually only watched it for the first time last year maybe um was really excited to like settle into it because I love a good like musical and especially like a film with a band in it I always think is very fun to watch um Actually, when I saw Head, I hadn't even seen like A Hard Day's Night or Help, the Beatles movies. Um, So I didn't know what to expect. Okay. But I did definitely expect something a lot more linear than what we got. That is saying, as someone who watched it today, that is, that is saying something. This is a trip of a movie. Yeah. Like, so basically it was, um, it was made, so the Monkees were one of the first manufactured bands. And they were originally known as the Prefab Four. Okay. Um, as a kind of slight on them and like comparison to the Beatles. And it was a guy called Bob Rafelson and his business partner, Bert Schneider, who in 1962 had actually been inspired by A Hard Day's Night. And they wanted to have a TV series about a fictional band and just all the kind of hijinks that they'd get up to. And they then put out this call to audition musicians um to come in and be in this band and do you know Stephen Stills who's in Crosby Stills not yes. too young. yeah so he's really good friends with Bob Rafelson who's one of the guys who was made the monkeys and he heard about this idea that he had and he's like oh my god this sounds amazing this sounds like so much fun can I be in this like fake band and um, Bob Rafelson was just like um no like your teeth and your hair aren't good enough yeah yeah. Oh my God. So, so much shade, like so much shade. And Stephen Stills was just like, oh, well, like, can you put the money in to fix my hair and teeth and I'll be in this band? And Bob was just like, we don't have the budget for this. You just need to be already perfect. Like, could you imagine that for your self-esteem? Like, especially when you're in Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and like Graham Nash is probably one of the prettiest musicians of the like 1960s. So Bob is like, no, like you won't do, but do you have a friend who looks like you? Like even worse. What the hell? I know, so bad. And Stephen was just like, oh, do you know what I actually do? His name is Peter Tork. He's like a Greenwich Village uh, musician. So Peter Tork was one of the kind of first ones to be hired. Davy Jones, who was the English member of the Monkees and who I used to have such a massive crush on when I was a child. Extremely like, fair. Extremely oh fair. He is such a little cutie. Sorry, was. He's no longer with oh, us. Oh, R.E.P. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Heaven is has... Mickey still alive? Mickey's the only one who's still alive. He is additionless. He <laughs> is. I think he's... A re- There's something about the hair. He's yeah. huge hair and he's just like very like... So skinny. Cute, yeah. A little all, slip of a thing. Like, it's hilarious. Like, so funny. So they did the auditions. Um, they put out an ad in, like, a newspaper. And one of the things in the ad was like, we're looking for four insane guys to, like, be in this band. So they had Davy Jones because he had signed up to Columbia, which okay. is the company who distributed it all and where the TV program was going. They had him, they had Peter Tork, uh, Michael Nesmith as well was like a folk singer. Um, he came along, he was also an actor. And then Mickey Dolans was actually a child actor. So they got the four of them together. But like you had people like Harry Nelson um, audition for this. Um, Stephen Stills, as I mentioned, Towns Van, Z- or Van Dyke Parks. He also tried to be in the band. So they had it. 
they had the TV series then for two seasons. Very successful, lads, like clean image, very pretty. Um, it was also like a bit of a counterculture TV show, which is really funny because they're so clean mm-hmm. and they're so like, seem so straight laced. But like there's wee jokes and all of it and like gas, kind of the original Tenacious D. Um, and then the, Bob was really good friends with a little known Jack Nicholson. Guys. Yeah. So in 1968, the TV series had been cancelled after two seasons. The band were really frustrated because like you had these two um, folk musicians who really wanted to actually just be in a band yeah. and write songs, but they wouldn't. They weren't allowed. They were never allowed to like play their instruments, write their songs. They had a musical director called Don Kirshner who did everything. And they had a very like fractious relationship because he was so controlling in the studio. So Bob or Jack comes along. He's like nothing at this point. He's like maybe been in um, a few like films as an extra. Yeah. So he was gonna like give up acting and just go directing. So he got on board to write a screenplay for Head with Bob, uh, Bert, and all of the monkeys. So they convened in 1968 in Harry Dean Stanton's basement. Uh, Jack had gotten a load of weed. And they just smoked loads of weed, got really baked. And then they had a tape recorder and they were all just like spitting out ideas for like this film. And then Jack with the tape went like, was like, okay, I have the tape, I have the material. I'm going to take loads of LSD. This is all like from Bob Rafelson's mouth. So can't get sued. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's on the record already. Just not by us. It's fine. Yeah. So he like got absolutely baked on LSD and wrote the screenplay. So that was how Head then came to its like written form. And then they went to start filming it. And on the first day of filming, all but Peter Tork stormed out of the set because they were told that they wouldn't have any like directing credits, no screenwriting credit at all. So they're like, fuck this. Like we put as much work into this as like... Bert, Bob and Jack. Yeah. So they protested. The next day they're like, okay, look, we'll give you a bit more of a cut on the film. Like, please just come back. So they came back and from that moment on, it really like disintegrated the relationship between the band and Bob and Bert. And there's loads of really interesting retrospective interviews where like Davy Jones and Peter Tork are just like, yeah, this film should never have been made. And they are convinced that this film was made to sabotage the monkeys because they were like, Bob was kind of building a profile. He wanted to go on and direct more serious films. Um, So if you'll notice in the film, there's a bit where they're in a diner, which is one of my favourite scenes in it. I think it's so funny. And he's ordering like the crispy mushrooms and like the ice cream is like slowly melting in the hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really sinister in a a way. Like the the change in tone throughout is like very, like I loved it, but it was like, what? I didn't know what was going to happen at any point in this movie. Yeah, I was like completely on edge when I watched it for the first time and was almost getting kind of annoyed by it as well. Mm. Um, but anyways, this diner scene, they're like, they're doing all this and then someone shouts cut. And then Bob Rafelson actually is the director in that scene, kind of like directing people. Um, we see Jack Nicholson for a second in it. 
oh my god I totally missed yeah, that I it's think a, it's a real blink and you'll miss it I'll have to go yeah, back and watch it. yeah that. go back and watch it because yeah. he looks very well in it yeah. he was another dish oh, he's oh. such a dish oh, oh stop <laughs> um, so he's in it as well like talking to Bob and then in the background very eagle-eyed you'll see Dennis Hopper and he's wearing his Easy Rider costume because Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider produced Easy Rider which was made around the kind of same time so there's that little kind of nugget so after this film Bob Rafelson had like pretty successful career he had five easy pieces which was Jack Nicholson's first like lead starring role which is unbelievable produced Easy Rider and then the monkeys were just really fucked after this because it flopped massively. Um, they had like a budget of $750,000 and at the bottom... What the yeah, fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Insane. That kind of doesn't come across like no. it's... What? Yeah. I think a lot of the budget went into... Because this is one of the first like truly experimental films of its time. Yeah. Like in terms of like its editing and the soundtrack and everything like that. So I think a lot of it went into that, like they had no PR campaign. Like basically their PR campaign was an ad on TV with a picture of a man's head. I can't remember his name. I think he was like maybe like the press officer or something like that. Basically, it was just his head on an ad and it was just like, go see head and like nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then Bob and Jack made stickers of the same image of the head. Okay. And they were just like, oh, we'll just do like kind of guerrilla marketing where we'll... Oh my God, not the guerrilla marketing sticker. (laughs) (laughs) What? Like, I'm agog. So they were sticking these stickers up all over like LA to try and get people's interest, but didn't say it was a film at all. Mm. They got arrested as well in New York when they were doing this like sticking job. Yeah. Because they stuck a sticker on a policeman's helmet. Okay, well, yeah, I mean... If you've had enough LSD and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so it made then at the box office $16,000. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, it premiered on a Friday. It was taken out of the cinemas on a Wednesday. It really alienated fans because, again, there was like very teen friendly, but teenagers weren't really able to see this film. It also just kind of really alienated them in terms of like the themes. Because when you watch it as well, it is surprising how mature the themes are in like how it mocks like the music industry and the film industry, but also has a lot of like Vietnam undertones yeah, as well. Yeah, which majorly. Is, it's interesting. And like for 1968, it's, it's a given. But, like, the way they do it is so jarring. Um, So, yeah, so they lost a lot of money, alienated fans, because they also wanted to broaden their appeal and have adults be their fans instead of just being this, like, teeny bop band. But, like, it completely destroyed them. But, like, but that was never going to happen, really, in terms of that recruitment campaign for adults, really, just because of the show and this image that had already been built. This was never going to fix it, even if the movie had been, like, Quote, unquote, good. Yeah. But then, so the soundtrack of it actually 
was better received at the time. Is that just like a standalone album for them or is it like a soundtrack? Okay. Because yeah. I liked the music. There were a couple of songs I was like, the song where all the gals are like belly dancing. Oh my God. So Such a tune. That is iconic. So good. Yeah. yeah. So they had as well, like Harry Nelson wrote Daddy's Song, which is the song where Davy Jones is dressed like Austin Powers and it cuts, again, it cuts to like the black and the white mm. kind of flip, which was really innovative for the time. Such a tune as well. Um, Carol King and um, her husband Jerry Goff, they wrote Porpoise Song, which is the main song where Mickey, he falls into the into the sea and it's playing that. They wrote that and she obviously had like Too Late was like her big one. She wrote the Gilmore Girls theme song. Iconic. Yeah. Oh. So like just a really odd mix of people coming together to make this film that should have ended, well, kind of did end a lot of careers, but... Has Jack Nicholson ever acknowledged it after the fact? Um, he has, I think. I think he was just like, yeah, that was a bit of a trip. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I wonder how much That was it a is. really bad session. Yeah. Saws yeah. to the lads. Yeah. Whoops. Yeah. Imagine of the Sunday scaries, but it's like you made head. Yeah, <laughs> and the reason actually is so gas. The reason why it's called head is because, so the it was going to be called changes initially. Okay. And then they were like, no, Let's call it head because they knew Bob and Bert knew that they were going to have Easy Rider coming out quite soon. So in the marketing campaign, they wanted the ad to say from the guys who gave you head. That makes sense. It's I knew. I was like, I knew there must be an innuendo in there because otherwise, it just why else like it? Like yeah. I am. Um, this is it's fascinating. Everyone needs to know about this. Yeah. Thank fuck we're making this podcast. <laughs> Talk to me a bit more about the response after. You said some of them were like, it should just never have been made. So was it just like this came out, it obviously flopped yeah. in a major, major way. Yeah. What happened to them? Were they just like all, because you'd already said they were kind of a bit fucked off with everything that was going on with the lads in charge. Were they just like, right, we really just need to draw in under all this and just forget about it and go do our own thing? Yeah, basically. So Peter Tork was the first one to leave. So the monkey's lifespan in their initial phase lasted like 1966 to 1970. And that's when Peter Tork was like, I'm done. Like, I can't be arsed anymore. It's so short. Because even if you knew nothing about them, you'd kind of still think they had more of a... They were around for longer, I suppose. They clearly had like a cultural yeah. impact and whatever in some kind of way. But to me, I'm like, they were around for ages. Like that's such a small period of time. It's tiny. Like, and given as well, like the level of success they had. So there was one point where the monkeys, I think it was like in 67 or 66 maybe, they outsold the Beatles and the Rolling Stones combined. Combined. What? Yes. Like... The level of their success and the height of their fame is just unfathomable yeah. because, again, like they're this manufactured group. They're not taken seriously. Like everyone thinks they're a joke. Like, and that is why they're like, maybe a movie. We haven't done that. This will be the thing that like takes us to the next level and maybe gets us a bit of respect. Um, so, yeah, like when it came out and like when they did like a press screening of it as well. So, it's 110 minutes originally, but they cut it to 86 minutes because they were just like, this is just shit. Like, this is terrible. But in interviews, like, um, initially, some of them were like, yeah, like it was a bit of crack. Yeah. Um, didn't really have a great time 
like making it. Uh, Peter Tork in particular is very was very prickly about it because he was just like I, one of the first ones to just say this was basically like Rafelson trying to sabotage us, and he was done with us, and he wanted to make a joke of it out of us. Um, and like in 2012, there's like a big interview in the Guardian where he is just like not holding back. So he was one of the first to be like, no, this is terrible. Davy Jones also like stepped on board. They've never really like said that they liked it or that it was an enjoyable process for them. And then obviously with Peter leaving, it just was such bad blood. But it was really interesting because in the 80s, so in 1986, Peter Tork got involved in MTV. Okay. And he was like one of the first people to like see the importance of music videos, Mm -hmm. which is really fascinating again, because when you watch it, like I think you could break it up into sections. I was just about to say that. Yeah, it's like a long stream of like music videos. essentially. Like there's a different concept in every act, like nearly. Yeah. And like, it's really fascinating. But uh, yeah, so he was involved in MTV and... They had like one or two kind of resurgences, like one in the 70s and like 76, but I don't, Peter wasn't involved. And then in 1986, bizarrely, MTV had a 22 hour marathon where they played all of the monkeys episodes of the show. Right. And that rejuvenated something like the cult, the crowd and the, the generation were like, this is kind of gas, like, because mm. it had that 20 year remove. And then the monkeys just like were so popular again. Like everyone loved them. They got the band back together. They did like some tours. They did also like another tour in the 90s. Can I ask at this point, were they like playing instruments and stuff or was it still like very, okay. So So they were kind of had that balance of like, we were getting kind of what we wanted all along. Yeah. At this point, they were just really adamant because I think they're a bit older they had that kind of... They probably had more sway as well, though, when it's like, these people are dying for us to come back, we'll come back on. We, we're doing it the way we want to now. Yeah. But when they did do it their way, it was terrible. It was really bad. Oh, yeah. There's like a no. tour. It's so Marla story. Don't always do it your way because I might be shy. Yeah. So they did it again. They did like a show in like the late 90s and it was really, really badly panned. And like Mike Nesmith was just like, I'm never, ever coming back to the monkeys again. So it was the last time in any form that they ever made an appearance, all the four of them together, which is really sad. That is very sad. Yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Um, What did you think of it? I, so listen, it served a purpose in that. Like, I'm fascinated by them now and I'm going to go away and like I want to listen to the music and I want to go back and watch the TV show because there was something about 
like it's you can understand why they put the four of them together for a manufactured band because they're like very charming, yeah. very endearing, v- easy on the eye, whatever. Yeah. They clearly have like a good rapport. They're like some really funny bits. But to be honest, that tone change, I just was never sure what I was watching. And now yeah. when you tell me they were all on drugs and it was kind of this, I don't want to say puff piece because it's not, because as you mm. mentioned, it is really innovative in some ways and like interesting but it like the the change of tone is so so breakneck that I was just never ever sure what I was watching, and it was only when you said that word sinister, I was like, yeah, there were parts of this where I was like actually a bit uncomfortable, and yeah. I don't really, I don't really know what I'm watching. Did like the music? I'd love to go and revisit that as someone with like fresh ears. Um, I feel like I'd enjoy it if I too was on drugs. Like, yeah, you know what I mean. Like yeah. it just strikes me as one of those ultimate stoner yeah. movies. Um, but that story behind it just makes me so... Because they do look like they're having a good time doing it for the most part, you know what I mean? Because some of yeah. it is just so silly and you're do, playing into like all the kind of like parody movie things like the mm-hmm. cowboy and Indian shit and like you're tearing down the set, like going through the curtain and that whole bit where they're in like an ad and they're dandruff on someone's head. Oh my God. You know what I mean? Like some of it is just so bizarre that it's like you kind of can't help but like smirk. It's brilliant. Like the dandruff bit is phenomenal. Yeah, like it's, they're like, you're not even jumping, jump up, you're supposed to be dandruff and they're just like, uh, yeah. kind of rocking up and down. It's, it's correct. Like, I don't think I'd be able to adequately describe it to someone other than you or someone else who's seen it. Like, you know, yeah. it's bonkers. And especially the way that, like, the dandruff bit. So they're on. So the other thing about it is, like, as I said, like, there's loads of, like, kind of blink and you miss them cameos. So that was the man who they're dandruff for is a guy called Victor. Mature, okay. Who I, I have no idea. I think he was like a big kind of Hollywood actor from like the fifties. So he's kind of a prominent recurring person in it. But it's just mad that they had like all of these like people in the film. Like Frank Zappa is in the film. Oh, guys, yeah. So Frank Zappa, because he like was in. He appeared on the Monkeys TV show as well. So they had like a weird variety element to their show where they had like. Frank Zappa was on it. Tim Buckley did like a performance on it. So they got like all these really cool, interesting people to work with them and perform with them. But like, yeah, so Frank Zappa plays a critic. Okay. um, And he's like walking out of the studio with a cow and the cow like turns to, is it like Mickey Dolenz? And he has like this German accent and he's just like, the monkeys are crazy people. It's like, why is this guy? Like, what is going on? Like, what's the significance? What's the symbolism? Yeah, like, and just like having someone like Frank Zappa in a monkeys movie yeah. is just wild. Um, but the bit with the dandruff that I love as well is when they like are potentially like advertising for some like Hoover or something like that because like the lads get hoovered up from your man's head but Davy Jones gets the fear and he's like holding on in the tube and they're all like Davy, Davy, where's Davy? And it's just like. How? Like, how did this come to be? It's just, I can't, like, I cannot even, like, it's, yeah. it's so bonkers. Um, you, you obviously, you didn't watch it at the time. You've yeah. watched it since. And we've kind of talked about, like, the whole idea of this podcast is, you know, were there things that maybe flopped in inverted commas in the past, be it that commercially or critically. Mm. And, you know, maybe in your, in your heart now, they're like very dear to you. 
etc., etc. Like that kind of revisionist history where it's like, at the time, everyone was like, it's shit. And then a few years later, it's like, no, this is brilliant. Mm. What's the response been kind of like now or in modern day? Or is it still very much like, yeah, no, this was fucking mental and this would never, this would never fly yeah. in 2022 or beyond? So it has a bit of a cult following yeah. now, which I think came in around the 90s. And I think a huge part of it is to do with the soundtrack. Because the music, like as you were saying, it's so good. And the soundtrack as well was compiled by Jack Nicholson. So when you listen to the soundtrack, it chops and changes where a certain dialogue in the film appears in the album. And just like songs like Porpoise Song is, it's such a banger and like, can you take it and all that? So people just, I think, got a bit more on board for the whole hilarity of how extreme this was and how bright and colourful it is. And again, just like that kind of MTV humour of the stoner kind of vibe, very Tenacious D-esque, I think, anyway. Um, so people do love it now. Like there's a guy, Tom Sharpling, who is, he, ha- he hosts this uh, podcast and radio show called The Best Show. And he does like loads of music videos and he it's one of his favourite films and he loves the monkeys. But he like just loves the innovation of how experimental it is. And I think when you do watch it, like that like scene where it cuts to the black and white is so impressive because you're like, how the hell did this happen? Mm. And then I think as well, the association with Jack Nicholson obviously is gas to think then that like at that same time, Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces was part of this but this is just like so different and so baffling and again I I always think it's really fascinating to watch American films from that time ju- purely for the commentary on the country so like it's really fascinating to see how they talk about the war because like I watched as well there's a really fascinating documentary on YouTube and it's just Bob Rafelson it's called um from the monkeys to head and he's talking about like the bit at the very start where they splice together like the screaming crowd and also then the images of like Viet Cong members being assassinated and he was just saying how like at that time that was almost like a commentary on how people would scream but they didn't really know what they were actually screaming for which is interesting but also again just like that's such a weird kind of mentality to have like and then even like just the way in which the monkeys were real like just puppets for the film like I think it's really fascinating to watch this film through the guise of like there's no band that would do that now like and then when you see like stuff like the Beatles Hard Days Night and Help and they are similar but like they definitely had more authority and authorship on on what they're doing. Yeah. So it makes you appreciate it and are be a bit more impressed by it. Whereas this, you're just like, these lads just did any old shit. Like. Yeah. Yeah, as much as I'm like, it looked like they had fun, it kind of seems like they were making what they could of a situation as well. Like, yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. I know you just said there that no band would do a movie like this in this day and age, but Who would I say, say they did. Who, what artist or band would you love to see do a head style movie? You know what? I. Like, imagine One Direction doing this. Oh my God. Harry Styles probably would do it. Harry Styles would do something he like this. He would froth at the mouth yeah. to do it. He would be the one now to procure in the Jack Nicholson realm. Yeah. 
procuring the... Yeah. It'll, but it'll be Olivia Wilde. If they're still going out by the time this is published. But oh, I'd say they will be. Yeah. Um, who would I like to see do this? Um, God, I haven't even really thought about that. One Direction would be good. Like someone like a Westlife would be gas. Yeah. Again, because they had that... Manuf- I think this only works with a manufactured band because they are so easily manipulated. Like, I don't think you'd get someone like you know, a black midi doing this. Yeah. Or like... It would be very interesting though. It would be really interesting. But then again, like black midi seem to like not take themselves too seriously. Like they do have fun with other visuals. Someone who I would have loved to see do something like this, but not now. It probably only would have happened in the 90s. Again, because it fits the humour is Beck. Yeah. Beck would have been able to do something like this because there's a few of his music videos actually that if you stitch them together actually could be head. Mm. But again, like now he just wouldn't do it. It wouldn't be as fun. Who would you like to see? I do just love the idea of One Direction. Like at their peak, just tumbling through life. Every time I think about the fact that it was your man that did the Super Size Me documentary, directed... Their movie. What? Yeah. What's his name? Morgan Spurlock. Yeah. Spurlock. I am dead. Fully, yeah. What? He directed the the first one anyway, definitely. And I think they had like three more. Now, a lot of them, it was like a lot of like concert footage. And they, you know, like, yeah. it wasn't more a movie with a like. movie with a concept. And I'm sure some people listening to this would be like, Hedge <laughs> doesn't have a concept. But you know what I mean? There's like some semblance of a story, whether we understand it. I don't know. Because imagine, like, like I can see Niall being, like, filling that kind of Mickey role and, yeah. you know, like, there's just something. And I suppose knowing the history of the band and where they went mm. and they kind of, I don't want to say they followed a similar route because in a lot of ways they didn't. But in a parallel universe, they also kind of did. Yeah. Um, Westlife would also be very interesting. You know could be really, I think, good at it as well is BTS. Yes. Yeah. That would, I think, be probably the only group that it would work. The difference with that then though is like their fan base is the way it is that mm. it would just be this roaring critically it remains to be seen but like it would make millions upon billions of dollars and it would just be like But could it, you imagine if it was the end of them though? Like yeah. could you because like they are The one thing that derailed them Yeah because yeah. they are kind of primed for being in the exact position that the monkeys were when they made head. Yeah. So could you imagine if like BTS do a film like Head and this was the ruination of them? That would be so fascinating it's, to watch. It's quite, when you think back to that impact that it actually had, it's demented. Do yeah. you think had Head not happened, they would have carried on a bit longer or no? Was it like, was it written in the stars all along? I think it was slightly written in the stars. But I do think that they probably, because this came out, when this came out, they were on their sixth album in the space of three years. And they did go on to release more. But I think that they were getting to a point before this film was made where they were starting to be listened to a little bit more in the studio and they were allowed to play their instruments like for recordings. And even like in the film, there's that scene where it's very early on where, where they do play a song live 
and they did get to record it live. So they were being listened to in that like, we want to play the music, like we're a band now. I know we're just supposed to be a fictional band, but like we are musicians. Like Peter Tork and Mike Nesmith were really getting pissed off at this point. And I do think that regardless of head or not, I think Peter Tork was like dying to get out and dying to just like be taken seriously. So I would say they would have probably lasted maybe another two years. But like, I think regardless, Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider, because they were the ones who really were managing them and like directing their career. They just had like checked out. So I'd say they were just donezo. Mm. But it's, and it's fascinating as well. Like I was looking this morning to see, just for like context, like what other films came out in America in 1968. And it was stuff like... um Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, do you know what I mean? Then there's um, Night of the Living Dead. Okay. So that. And then there's Rosemary's Baby. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So just like the timing of this film is, it's ma- like no matter what year like it was going to come out, it was always going to be really jarring. Yeah. But then as well, because it had such a counterculture um, association and not to get grim, but like it's 1968. It, it it premieres in I think November or December. And then like only eight months later, you have like all the Manson murders. So it's very fascinating just even to think about it in that timeline as well. Not to get grim, sorry for noon. <laughs> I'm all for getting grim on flat culture. Yeah. It's absolutely fine. Do you think that this is a film that you would recommend to people? It's a tough one, isn't I, it? To certain people, yeah. yeah. But they, like, I would maybe like 20% of my friend group and then the other 80%, like I would, like the monkeys wouldn't even register for them, I'd say. That's yeah. not a read, but like, they would just be like, what? Yeah. I... Like, I'd love to see Kean's reaction to this. Yeah. I feel like Kean would actually quite enjoy this and the madness. Mm. Um, it's just, it's a lot like. Yeah. But it has that, just to go back to the charm of, as you like, it's the colour and it's like them to a degree and it's like kind of fun, kind of silly. Like it's, like it's inoffensive in a lot of ways. And then it's very interesting when you have, when you consider all those other themes running through it, it'd be a great one for the Leaving Circle Parative. Oh my God. All the symbolism. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The Department of Education would be creaming themselves to get this. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. Not literally, but, well, maybe literally, I don't know, but. And like, did you find, so when I watched it for the first time last year, I just let it all kind of wash over me because I didn't know how to watch like again I didn't even know how to watch this because I didn't know what I was really looking out for and I wasn't able to like comprehend or try and follow the symbolism in certain bits um and then there's really interesting when you watch it for the second time and you can kind of follow it because as well when you see it for the second time the opening scene of the film and it has like all the like tiles of like different scenes and they're all scenes from the film so you're like okay yeah like try and be aware of like anything that's like tried to be brought up as like a, a a metaphor and I found it really interesting like certain things like how they were like making fun of themselves where there's like the scene in the diner which I just fucking love that scene so much um, where the waitress in there 
turns to Mickey Dolan's and his item, are you still like making a living off your Ringo Starr uh, like thing? Yeah. And it's like, like but then like they do try to get like slightly deep in it as well where it's just like where Peter meets the like um the Indian kind of guru man mm. and that's where you, you see where they try to maybe elevate the tone and try and get really philosophical on it because he says things like um like he's trying to make Peter question everything and like give him the the meaning of life and then it just turns to Peter being like I don't know anything or he goes to the band he's like I've just like found enlightenment and I know what everything's about and they're like what's it about and he's like oh I can't remember just like oh, <laughs> one. Um, and then even just like throw away lines that arrive in the middle of the film where it's just like um, never never give a funny man money or something like I, that uh, and it's the text flashes up as he's saying it yeah yeah. it's really like but it's so jarring because you're like oh that's like quite a significant statement but because of the context of it you're just like it kind of seems throwaway as you said yeah which is really annoying because like there is really poignant and kind of pressing things mm. that are in there and then there's like someone as well when the lads are getting the tour of the factory before they become dandruff. Um, which also in a really weird way, that whole bit reminded me of like, it could have been like a deleted scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. that kind of weird stuff. But like the factory owner turns to them and he says, the tragedy of your time, dear gentleman, is that you may get what you want. It's like... That's very fascinating. That's so deep. like So deep. And especially like for the monkeys because they had no real ambitions for like any of what they achieved. And then they did get it all. And then basically the men who made them were the like reason of their downfall. And as well... Um, reading about the film and like some of the like meanings of the symbolism. So you'll notice that like they're always kind of contained in something. So whether it's like they're in a, a Hoover or they're in um, that weird like box mm. that they're like taken in, uh, like shipped off in a helicopter to. Even just like small things like being contained within a set, like a set that kind of conveys real life settings, but not really. Um, something that Rafelson said was that kind of imagery was to symbolise how they were always going to be like stuck in like a certain kind of place that they were never able to like get out of which is really fascinating as well when uh, spoilers but like the end of the film so the start of the film starts with Mickey like running and he jumps off I think it's like the Golden Gate Bridge yeah. so he like jumps into like the sea and then mermaids save him yeah um, and God for mermaids. Sure, look, Ariel just living her best <laughs> life, saving the monkeys. Um, but the film then kind of comes full circle, and then all of the bandmates do it. Um, and you're like, oh, they're all going to be in the scene now. But then the final th- cut is just all of them in a fish tank, which again is like a very claustrophobic, contained, superficial space, which is really, really fascinating on second watch to like look out for all of those things so I do recommend a second watch Lula. yeah I do think I need another because I, I do think I need another watch just to pick out those things yeah 
Yeah, and it, it's as like, we're talking about it again. I'm like, this is really good. I really like it. Really it. Good, like, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, like I just love the chaos of it. Yeah, because you just you can't make that film now. Like I only saw like bits of Tapley was watching everything everywhere all at once. Yeah, I haven't watched it. It's I on my list. Yeah, but it, yeah, it is that like multiverse. Yeah. What if the multiverse was real and we're humans and we're not all like superheroes? Yeah. yeah, like there was times where he was watching it and I'd turn around and like see something in, like rogue happening. I was like, what the, what is this? Like, what are you watching? <laughs> but then at the same time, I could be like watching Head and yeah. someone would be like, what are you actually doing? What is that? Yeah. Why are those men pretending to be dandruff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, in a sentence, talk to me about Head. Sell Head to someone listening. I think if someone wants a good time, wants to switch off and be like completely blown away and have their head blown to smithereens, sit down and watch this. Also listen to the soundtrack because there are some unbelievable tunes. And actually watch Head and then watch loads of documentaries about it. Like there's loads on YouTube that are like 20 minutes long and it's just fascinating, especially for the Jack Nicholson. I think just for the Jack Nicholson element alone, it's worth like watching and for his little cameo. So that is such good pub quiz knowledge as well. I feel like you'd be so smug if you knew that. Oh, when it came stop. Up. So smug. Yeah. Um, Zara, where can people find you? Find out more about you. You're a writer, writer of the arts. Where can people read your reviews and your bits? Um, so you can find me on Twitter, uh, Zara underscore Hedwin, I believe. Um, and then I do bits for the Quietest, Loud and Quiet, um, RT Arena, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Incredible. Find Sarah. me in my living room watching head. <laughs> <laughs> Flat out. Yeah. Sarah Hedman, it's been a pleasure. You'll have to come back if you have another you. pick or if you think of anything. Text me. I will. Email me. Um, I would love to have you back. Um, but it has so been much. an absolute pleasure to have you on Flop Culture. Thank you. Thanks so much, Manila. It's been a joy. And you yourself can watch Head in full on YouTube. I recommend doing so accompanied by the strongest wine slash CBD gummy you can find. All of Zara's links are in the show notes as well if you want to keep up with her. And her writing, she's excellent. She's also very frequently on Arena where she gave the 1975 album a really bad review. Um, But we can't all be right all the time, you know? That's fine, Zara. It's totally fine. Who is top of the flops this week? I was absolutely spoiled for choice. You're a flop. Top of the flops this week. I mean, Kanye West obviously going for not two in a row, but like second time in mere weeks. I don't really want to talk about him. And I don't, when I say that, I don't want to diminish how harmful and poisonous his rhetoric has been. And I absolutely denounce it. And I stand with the Jewish community. I'm so glad uh, Ali Das have stood up to it finally. I just don't really want to talk about that. I also don't really want to talk about James Corden doubling down initially on being a dickhead to a server and then apologising when he realised that that reaction wasn't really going to fly. The sooner the sooner that car that he uses for carpool karaoke is permanently clamped. Please. Anyway, both of them are obviously top of the flaps. But you know what? I believe in feminism. I believe in gender equality. So let's give it to the girlies this week. Liz Truss is top of the flaps this week. She became Britain's shortest serving Prime Minister in history after King Charles accepted her resignation this week in Buckingham Palace after just 49 days in office. Lizzie said, fuck quiet quitting, let's get loud, to quote Miss Jennifer Lopez. 
Uh, yeah, her mini budget was an absolute disaster, financial turmoil. Like the definition of going in and just, you know, that domino effect of a fuck up you have at work and it just, everyone's fucked. Every department is in absolute shite and it's all your fault. Good job, Lizzie. Um, obviously gave her a leaving speech this week in Downing Street saying, I'm more convinced than ever that we need to be bold and confront the challenges we face. We simply cannot afford to be a low growth country where the government takes up an increasing share of our national wealth. She sounds like a male podcast, I'm going to be honest. Someone was actually going to do an episode on her and then she had to go and bloody resign. So, uh, and then my schedule was also a shambles. I won't fully blame that on Liz. Uh, so myself and my guest are regrouping on that. But for now, Tara Tara Liz, enjoy listening to Midnight's because I'm absolutely sure that's what she's doing because we learned upon leaving that her favourite Taylor Swift song is Blank Space. Cruel Summer is better, but anyway. Thank you so much for listening as always or if it's your first time here for listening for the first time. I really appreciate it. We are on Instagram and TikTok under flapculture underscore pod and you can get in touch at helloflapculture at gmail.com. If you leave a five-star review and your name or nickname on Apple Podcasts, I would recommend a bop to you. You can also leave a five-star review on Spotify. And This week's bop is for Kayla, but with four A's. So that's K, four A's, L-A. Um, and they said... I should have had this up sooner. Why didn't I? Whoops, hang on. Kayla said, well, the title of her five-star review was I Pick My Poison and It's You. We surely were going to do a radar episode at some point. Uh, and then they said, ooh, what a, what a clang of a pod. Keep up the good work. To quote Trinity the Talk, I don't know what the fuck she's saying, but girl, I am living. So thank you for a five-star review. Uh, your bop this week I've been banging on about it on Instagram uh, it's the bear it's on Disney Plus it's eight episodes they're all 30 minutes except the last one which is a little bit longer Jeremy Allen White is such a ride uh, it's about a chef who's like Michelin trained returned back home to his brother's greasy spoon after his death he wants to turn it around good drama good characters don't eat it while you're hungry for the love of God because you will be famished very very good I'm already like I just cannot wait for next season it's so strong so so strong you will thoroughly enjoy it thank you for listening to the podcast otherwise and for your lovely five star review I appreciate it as always this podcast has been edited by Adam Shanahan artwork by Brian Lambert and with that I will see you next week goodbye